Good morning, Harvest Church. My name is Matt Quintana. I'm the pastoral intern here. It's my joy to continue this morning in our study through Isaiah as we make our way through this complex and yet beautiful and amazing book. We finally get a break now from trying to cover upwards of five or six chapters in a single week, and so we're only covering two this week, which is, is going to be hopefully relieving for, uh, for you. It's relieving for me, <laughs> uh, just as I, as I was preparing. Um, we're going to be in chapters 34 and 35, so please turn there with me. As I've experienced the complexities of life and matured as a follower of Christ, I've come to realize that things aren't always black and white, whether it's a major decision, a political viewpoint, a moral dilemma, a theological position. The issues just aren't always clean cut, even though I'd like them to be. Sometimes legitimate gray area exists. There's nuance and humility that are required. And yet, that being said, there are occasions when it is completely appropriate to draw such strict binaries. When it comes to the teachings of Scripture, some issues simply are black and white. These concepts are inherently offensive to a world that prefers gray and a culture where any pol uh, polarity is deemed intolerant. One such example that is perhaps the most prominent in Scripture is the distinction between those who trust in the Creator Yahweh and those who do not. According to God's Word, all humans are faced with a choice. Either lean wholly on the Lord as provider, defender, savior, or depend totally on yourself. We've already seen this reality through the book of Isaiah, which forcefully summons readers to trust in God alone, and these same ideas are present in our passage today, and it's going to illustrate for us the respective results of these two options. It's going to show us the future that awaits those who trust in Yahweh and those who do not. And so here's our truth statement for this morning. It'll be up on the screen. The day of Yahweh will result in judgment for all who do not trust in Yahweh and salvation for all who do. The day of Yahweh will result in judgment for all who do not trust in Yahweh and salvation for all who do. Chapters 34 and 35 heavily emphasize this concept of the day of Yahweh or the day of the Lord. If you've read the Old Testament, it's a theme that is prominent all throughout, especially in the prophets. We've seen it repeatedly throughout the book of Isaiah. The day of Yahweh will, adjust, uh, will address rather, the injustice and rebellion of Israel and all the nations, and it will also result in restoration and hope for God's people in this future time when the kingdom of Yahweh will be established, the promised Messiah will reign. And so in short, the day of the Lord denotes the intervention of Yahweh's judgment and salvation in the world. It's important to remember, remember though, that the day of Yahweh, this phrase, it's not referring to a literal 24-hour time period. It's about a quality of time in which Yahweh intervenes in history in a supernatural way. And so when exactly is this day? Well, from the prophet's perspective, it's a future time when God will intervene in human history in a decisive way. 
Again, it doesn't refer to a single day, but it refers to any time when Yahweh specially intervenes in human affairs, punishing sin and rebellion and restoring the fortunes of a righteous remnant who are preserved through even the most severe judgment. This is why the Old Testament prophets speak of both the days of Yahweh, lowercase d, and the day of Yahweh, uppercase d. It's maybe a helpful way to think about it. They view certain events as many days of Yahweh, which point forward to a single climactic day of Yahweh. There's these events that God uses to judge evil and vindicate the righteous, and they all lead up to this great future day when he will do this for all of creation. And so this day of Yahweh is really twofold in nature. It entails both punishment of the wicked, of those who do not trust in God, and it entails restoration and salvation of the righteous, those who do depend on the Lord. And so in our text this morning, we're going to see that each chapter focuses on one side of that coin. And so chapter 34 is about judgment on the day of the Lord. Chapter 35 is about salvation in the day of the Lord. Before we hop into our chapters, just a a bit of a big picture of the book of Isaiah, it naturally divides into two major sections. You have chapters 1 through 39 and then 40 through 66. And obviously we're, earing, uh, we're, we're nearing the end of that first section in chapters 34 and 35. And we're going to see that these chapters play an important role in how the message of this book is developing and what it's communicating to us. And so they present these opposite sides of the same coin, and yet they're a single unit Both these chapters share a lot of common themes and words, and they complement one another in the larger scheme of the book. And together, these chapters summarize two major themes of the book of Isaiah, Yahweh's sovereign power over all the nations of the world and the exaltation of Zion for the salvation of God's people. These two chapters, along with chapters 36 uh, 36 through 39, which we'll look at next week, are a strategic bridge between these two halves of the book of Isaiah. They point backward and forward at the same time. They bring to a climax all that we've seen already in the book, and at the same time, they extend the themes of chapters 1 through 33 into the future. There's countless links to ideas we've seen in previous chapters here, and this unit is going to bring us back to a larger universal perspective of judgment and redemption that we have seen, especially in chapters 13 through 27. All right, chapter 34. It's primarily directed backwards and that it offers us a holistic reading of what we've seen so far, and yet there's these strong links with certain chapters, especially chapters 13 and 24, and together they point forward to this climactic finale we will eventually get to at the end of the book. We're only covering these two chapters again today, 34 and 35, and so I want to read the passage in full. And so let's begin with chapter 34. You nations, come here and listen. You peoples, pay attention. Let the earth and all that fills it here, the world and all that comes from it. Yahweh is angry with all the nations, furious with all their armies. He will set them apart for destruction, giving them over to slaughter. 
Their slain will be thrown out, and the stench of their corpses will rise. The mountains will flow with their blood. All the stars in the sky will dissolve. The sky will roll up like a scroll. Its stars will all wither, and its leaves wither on the vine and foliage on the fig tree. When my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens, it will then come down on Edom and on the people I've set apart for destruction. Yahweh's sword is covered with blood. It drips with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For Yahweh has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. The wild oxen will be struck down with them, and young bulls with the mighty bulls. Their land will be soaked with blood, and their soil will be saturated with fat. For Yahweh has a day of vengeance, a time of paying back Edom for its hostility against Zion. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her soil into sulfur, her land will become burning pitch. It will never go out, day or night. Its smoke will go up forever. It will be desolate from generation to generation. No one will pass through it forever and ever. Eagle owls and herons will possess it. Long-eared owls and ravens will dwell there. Yahweh will stretch out a measuring line and a plumb line over her for her destruction and chaos. No nobles will be left to proclaim the kingdom, and all her princes will come to nothing. Her palaces will be overgrown with thorns, her fortified cities with thistles and briars. She will become a dwelling for jackals and abode for ostriches. The desert creatures will meet hyenas, and one wild goat will call to another. Indeed, the night birds will stay there and will find a resting place. Sand partridges will make their nests there. They will lay and hatch their eggs and will gather their broods under their shadows. Indeed, the birds of prey will gather there, each with its mate. Search and read the scroll of Yahweh. Not one of them will be missing. Not one will be lacking its mate because he has ordered it by my mouth. He will gather them by his spirit. He has cast the lot for them. His hand allotted their portion with a measuring line. They will possess it forever. They will dwell in it from generation to generation. All right, it's a lot there. Um, a lot that is weird. <laughs> a lot that is uh, vivid and uh, gripping and even gross. Um, there's a lot here, though, that is, is very significant and is also um, beautiful and encouraging for us. And so let's begin chapters one, uh, verses 1 through 4, chapter 34. Yahweh summons the nations to judgment. These first few verses, they bring us back to the beginning of the book when God called the heavens and the earth uh, to witness to the covenant, this charge he was bringing against his people Israel, and now he's bringing a charge against the nations, the peoples. Let the earth and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. Yahweh is angry with all the nations, furious with all their armies. This judgment extends to the whole world. This brings us back to uh, chapter 14 when Yahweh declared, this is the plan prepared for the whole earth. This is the hand stretched out against all the nations. Yahweh of armies himself has planned it. Therefore, who can stand in its way? It is his hand that is outstretched, so who can turn it back? So the Lord is angry with all of rebellious humanity. Now, we should note that this burning anger, this wrath, it's not like some petty human resentment. It's the outworking of his righteous character as king, lawgiver, and savior, as the holy one of Israel. 
He aims this anger at what twists and deforms humanity. His wrath flows from his perfect justice and his great love, and it ultimately seeks cleansing and renewal. Verses 3 through 7 depict this just judgment in a gruesome and disturbing fashion. His wrath is pictured as a bloodbath in which the sword of Yahweh executes a great slaughter and sacrifice. The scope then zooms in from all the nations, all the peoples, to one nation, Edom. This might seem kind of odd why Edom, especially given the universal nature that we've just seen, that this is about all nations, why zoom in on one in particular? Especially since this one was not present anywhere else in the book. We didn't see it in the oracles against nations in chapters 13 through 27. The role of Edom in this chapter is not a historical specific one, but rather it's playing a representative function, standing for all the nations that have stirred God's anger. Edom functions within this chapter as the representative of the hostile enemy of Israel, par excellence, the symbol of all that evokes the divine wrath. And so this nation is used to represent all wicked humanity, nations that have stirred Yahweh to anger and deserve his wrath. And this is how Edom is used in other places in the prophets. In Isaiah 63, we'll see that again, but also Ezekiel 25 and Amos 9 and the entire book of Obadiah. The reason is is actually kind of fascinating. It's apparently owing to the fact that Edom, um, the word for the nation, and then the word humanity or mankind in Hebrew, Adam, Adam, they're from that same root, Edom. Adam, you can, you can hear it there. And so they use this word in it, and it just represents all of humanity, all of its wickedness, all that deserves God's judgment. And so here, Yahweh says in verse 8 that he will pay them back for their hostility against his people. Verse 8, Yahweh has a day of vengeance, a time of recompense or paying back for Zion's cause. We've already seen the description of this day, the day of the Lord, the day of God's anger in chapters 2 and 3, and especially in chapter 13 against Babylon. Again, like his anger, when Yahweh gets vengeance or recompense, it's not a typical 21st century revenge, getting back at someone for something they did to me regardless of how severe or if it's actually justified. No, God's vengeance, his justice His recompense is completely just. It's completely true. This is about the Lord making right all the wrongs that have been done against him, against his creation, against his people. His day of vengeance is good news because Yahweh is going to set the world to right. He's going to pay back the nations who have oppressed his people, verse 8, so much so that their land is going to be returned to this post-flood-like state. It will become like Sodom and Gomorrah, if you look at verse 9. It will be overturned into pitch, or sulfur and burning pitch, the words used of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. In verse 11, it says that he will stretch out a measuring line and a plumb line over her for her destruction and chaos. Those two words are the ones found in Genesis 1-4, the world before God shaped it and prepared it 
before humanity was formless and void, desolate and waste. Those are the descriptors here of what is going to happen to those nations who stand against the Lord. He's going to uncreate them in a sense. Another important line is found in verse 13. It says, Thorns will overrun its fortresses, brambles and thickets, uh, thistles in its strongholds. It will be a home of jackals and abode for ostriches. Back in chapter 27, Yahweh foretold his desirable vineyard, the restored holy remnant of his people. There was a song about this in chapter 5, and he mentions it again in chapter 27, saying, I am Yahweh who watches over it, the vineyard, to water it regularly, so that no one disturbs it. I watch over it night and day. In 27.6, he says, In the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and bloom and fill the whole world with fruit. That is the exact opposite of what we find here, is this palace is overgrown with thorns and with thistles and briars. And so this judgment on Edom is the exact opposite of what will happen to the Lord's desirable vineyard, to his place, to his people. Edom is an example of a nation that has violated they have sought to trample and destroy Yahweh's restored vineyard, his people, and so they will face his judgment. Verses 11 through 15 borrow from the list of repulsive, unclean creatures from chapter 13 that would be said to inhabit the desolate land of Babylon. There's all these different species and if you're like me, you probably don't even know what half these are, and, and sometimes Bible translator, uh, translations translate them differently just because they're uh, the, these very um, rare words, and we don't always know exactly what it's referring to, but the point is clear that it's these, these animals that are, that are wild, that are unclean, that will uh, take over the place that's supposed to be uh, filled by humans, and now it will belong to these wild animals. And this recalls the language from Genesis 6. If you look at verses 14 and 15 and 16, it says, each with its mate, or one will not lack the other, will not be lacking its mate. This is the, the language from Genesis 6 as Noah loads the ark prior to the flood. And so one author says, what is being depicted with this animal roster is a scene like that prior to Noah entering the ark or better, like that after the flood when all had been destroyed and only Noah and his animal collection remained. There's this, again, undoing, this, this destruction, this judgment that is poured out, and it's total. It, it covers everything. This judgment does lie in the future. This judgment that lie, uh, will, will come uh, uh, on, not just Edom, on any nation that stands against the Lord, but it is certain. And that's what verse 16 emphasizes. Search and read the scroll of Yahweh. Not one of them will be missing. Not one of them will be lacking its mate because he has ordered it by his mouth. He will gather them by his spirit. This is affirmed not just by this text, but also by elsewhere in scripture that this will happen, that God will judge and set things right. And so at the end of chapter 34, in uh, the, the last part of verse 17, they will possess it forever, these wild animals. They will dwell in it from generation to generation, and that is the exact same judgment that happens to Babylon in chapter 13, verse 20. 
It again points to the fact that Edom is representative of uh, this larger group, that it's representative of all wicked humanity. And like Babylon, it will be wiped out, it will be judged. In verse 1 of chapter 35, we get this very clear shift. We move now from talking about judgment and destruction to talking about blossoming and growth and, and restoration. Let's read chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a wildflower. It will blossom abundantly and will also rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of Yahweh, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, steady the shaking knees. Say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God, vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming, he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy, for water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground will become a pool and the thirsty land springs in the haunt of jackals. In their lairs there will be grass, reeds, and papyrus. A road will be there and a way. It will be called the holy way. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for the one who walks the path. Fools will not wonder on it. There will be no lion there and no vicious beast will go up on it. They will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk on it. The ransomed of Yahweh will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee. It's quite a uh, shift from chapter 34, right? It's quite a, a different picture that we see. At the beginning, of chapter 35, it talks about the blossoming of the dry land, the wilderness, the place that was formerly desolate and dead, now is blooming with life. This is the promise of chapter 27 that I, I read earlier when God said that Jacob would flourish, that his vineyard would become beautiful. This is the opposite of what we saw with Edom, the Nations that stand against Yahweh, that are desolate, that are made to be dead. This land flourishes, it's beautiful. The desert rejoices and blossoms, blossoms abundantly. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. All these places that, if you read earlier in Isaiah, formerly had received judgment, now all their glory, all their goodness and splendor that has been brought about will be restored and Yahweh will bring it to his people, to this place that he's preparing, that he's making beautiful. The end of verse 2 is, is, is amazing. They will see the glory of Yahweh, the splendor of our God. That changes everything. They will see the glory of Yahweh, the splendor of their God. When they get a sight of Yahweh, how, how can they not respond? How can they not fall to their knees like Isaiah in chapter 6 when he caught vision of the glory of the Lord. And so again, this then becomes an encouragement. This becomes something that we can hold on to and look forward to. And that's why in verse 3 and th 4, it encourages those who are afraid, those who are, are feeling the pressure of 
these other nations of those who are against God, against his people. Strengthen the weak hands. Steady the shaking knees. Be strong. Do not fear. You can hope because, verse 4, here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Again, we, we look back to chapter 34 when it said the day of vengeance, the recompense, the paying back that Yahweh would have against Edom. That occurs here. This, it, we, this promises that it is coming. It will be sure. And so, you can be strong. You cannot fear. God's retribution is coming. He will set the world to right. And then, He will save you. He pours out his judgment, his just recompense, and that leads to restoration. There's salvation through judgment, as the book has repeatedly emphasized. Verse 5 and 6 describe the reversal of these ailments, of these disabilities. The eyes of the blind are open. The deaf can hear. The lame leap like a deer. The mute sing for joy. It's amazing, especially when we remember this in conjunction with chapter 6, when Yahweh said to Isaiah, you're going to go out, you're going to proclaim my message, the people will not see, they will not hear, I will not let them, I will harden them because they have been so rebellious. I will judge them, I will purify them, I will burn them, and then there will be this remnant that survives, this remnant that is faithful, this remnant that is purified. And so here is the reversal of that judgment, of that inability to see and know and hear, which has already been hinted at in 29 and and chapter 32. The blind will be able to see. The deaf will be able to hear. This is not just physical, it's spiritual. They will be able to see and see the glory of Yahweh, verse 2. They will be able to hear his message and receive it. Water will gush in the wilderness, streams in the desert. Again, the dry land, the desolate place will be full of life. This calls back to Exodus and when God led his people through the wilderness and he kept providing for them water. There's this new exodus that will occur, the second exodus in which God will lead his people out of captivity, both literal from Babylon, but also spiritual. He will lead all his people from all over the world to his place, to Zion. And we'll do this as the second exodus. This, again, as, as 35 looks backwards and forwards, it, it, it points us back to chapter 12 and chapter 32 that said something similar, but also we'll see this idea of the second exodus of this uh, gushing of water in the wilderness of streams in the desert. We'll see this continued in the next half of Isaiah in chapter 41 and 43, 49. It's everywhere. In the haunt of jackals, verse 7, in their lairs there will be grass, reeds, and papyrus. This is the exact opposite of chapter 34 when the jackals would overtake Edom, when they would live in the once uh, dwelled in city. Now, here, they are only in their layers. They're not in the city of Zion. And verse 8 is, is important. A road will be there, and a way it will be called the holy way. They, uh, the, the unclean, that is, will not travel on it, but it will be the one who walks the path. 
There will be no lion there, no vicious beast. And so here we have brought in um, a theme that we've already seen in the book of Isaiah, this, this highway, this holy way. If you remember in chapter 11, it's this promise of the shoot, the, the uh, root of Jesse, this messianic king who's going to come from the offspring of, of David. He would be a banner to the nations, and he would, would be this highway so that God could collect the remnant of his people from all over the world. And then surprisingly, in chapter 19, we read that there's a highway that's going to lead not just Israel, but Assyria and Egypt to the dwelling place of God. God is establishing this way for all peoples who trust in him from all over the earth, not just Israel, but from Egypt, from Babylon, from Edom, from Moab, from everywhere. They are bringing, uh, bringing, he's bringing them back to Zion. And that's what will occur in this second exodus, in this uh, restoration from captivity. And we will see this all throughout the book of Isaiah, especially as it continues into the second half. Note that this is the holy way. This doesn't mean that uh, all refugees from Babylon are returning on this highway. Certainly not the unclean, the fools that it mentions here. It is for those who are holy. It anticipates the refinements of the promise from the end of the book where God is pictured as dwelling with only the one who is repentant and humble in spirit. And we saw this back in chapter 1 as well. Obviously, it is not our own righteousness, our own holiness that allows us to walk on this path. We've already seen in chapter 6 that it is God who purifies, who atones for his people. And we've seen that in other places in the last few chapters, that God is going to provide a way for atonement, for forgiveness, for redemption, and that will result in his people becoming holy, becoming the holy stump, or the holy seed that was mentioned in chapter 6, verse 13. The holy God has a holy place, and he's going to make for himself a holy people. In contrast to chapter 34, where all these vicious beasts were, there will be none on this path. The redeemed will walk on it. The ransomed of Yahweh will return. This is the righteous seed, the holy remnant that we've seen throughout Isaiah in chapter 4 talked about the holy seed that would receive the glory of the Lord that would dwell in Jerusalem and Zion. In chapter 10, the, the, the remnant will return, is promised. In chapter 11, as I mentioned with the highway, God will bring the remnant from all corners of the earth. And so here, the redeemed who walk on it, the ransomed who will return, who come to Zion with singing, with unending joy, are those that have been redeemed by the Lord, those who have been refined, who have faced judgment and been purified, and now get to walk in salvation, who come to Zion with joy, with singing, and instead of being weighed down by their sorrow, their burdens, their sadness, they are overtaken by joy and gladness. This calls back to chapter 25 when the Lord said he would remove the burial shroud that covered his people and they would not any longer cry or, or be sad. There would be this feast on Zion. And also we see this 
developed fully at the end of the book in chapter 65 as it talks about the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. So the salvation is not simply a deliverance from captivity. This is actually a sharing in God's new creation, his restored world that he's going to bring about. Those who walk on this way, who are redeemed by the Lord, will be in the new creation, who will, they will be crowned with unending joy. I love, love that phrase, crowned with unending joy. The day of Yahweh will result in judgment for all those who do not trust in Yahweh and salvation for all who do. This is the big idea of these two chapters. The message of these chapters is eschatological. It's, it's future-oriented. It looks ahead to a later time. And so as it's placed within the book of Isaiah, it has, it's not just recounting material from a particular period of Israel's history when they were led out of captivity or they were brought back from Babylon. It's, it's, it's instead intelligently designed in order to communicate this abiding message to all of God's people throughout history, that God is going to do this. He's going to bring his people to his place at some point in the future He's going to be completely and, and universal. It's going to be complete and universal. He's going to do this for all people. Isaiah 34 and 35 are this intentional link, again, between the two halves of the book, these two themes of God's power over the nations, his judgment upon them, and then his salvation of his people are stressed here, and they find culmination in the future ultimately, but they're foreshadowed especially in chapter 34, the judgment piece. God's sovereign power over the nations, his judgment upon them, even upon Assyria and Babylon, it's foreshadowing his ultimate purposes to restore and judge and put to rights all of the world. In chapter 35, it's, it's about more than just a physical return from exile. It's about uh, the, the future restoration of covenant relationship with the Lord. And so these two chapters project the plan of God into the future, and we'll see that in the rest of the book as it continues to develop, and instead it focuses on this final exaltation of God's people, their entrance into ultimate joy in his kingdom. Of Isaiah issues a clarion call to trust in the Lord alone. This morning, chapter 34 displayed the terrible end of those who do not trust in him, while chapter 35 showed us this glorious future for those who do. As it's written in Isaiah 7-9, if you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. And in chapter 26, Isaiah says, you will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it is a trusting in you. So trust in Yahweh forever, because in Yahweh, Yahweh himself is an everlasting rock. The day of Yahweh will result in judgment for all who do not trust in him and salvation for all who do. There is no neutrality. There's no middle ground or gray area here. Either you trust in Yahweh and you submit to him or you trust in man and you scorn the king of kings. Either your citizenship is with the city of man or the city of chaos that we saw in chapter 24 and 25, or your citizenship is with the city of God as we saw in chapter 26 to 27. 
Either you belong to Edom, chapter 34, or you belong to Zion, chapter 35. And so, on which side do you stand? If you're like the Edom of chapter 34, be warned, Yahweh is just and righteous. No one can escape his sovereign rule. His judgment is more fierce than anything threatened by man. But if you're among the redeemed of Zion in chapter 35, take heart. God will not allow his people to always be threatened and persecuted. He has a day, a great and mighty day, and he will vindicate the cause of his people. He will pay back in full the righteous justice that is deserved. And so we rejoice. Chapter 35 portrays so vividly the joy and gladness of those who know and experience the glory and salvation of the Lord. This joy and celebration are the result of God's deliverance, his restoration, his salvation, and also his judgment of his enemies, his paying back what is deserved. This is all found in his coming. 35.4, be strong and do not be afraid. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. God's recompense will come and he will deliver you. In a passage that speaks so clearly to the renewal of both creation and creature, it's only fitting to draw in our Christian confession that these promises find their climax, their fulfillment, their realization in Jesus of Nazareth. It is ultimately in the incarnation of the eternal Son that the coming of God for both salvation and judgment is realized. And so recall the distinction I made earlier about the many days of Yahweh versus the day of Yahweh. In the New Testament, the fra this framework is picked up and it's transformed in light of Jesus' incarnation, his death and resurrection. It turns out that there are these two stages of the day of Yahweh, the capital D day of Yahweh. The first stage is inaugurated with Christ's first coming. The second, however, awaits consummation when he returns. Put another way, the promised messianic kingdom of the Old Testament of Isaiah is both now and not yet. In his first coming, Jesus began to fulfill these great promises of Isaiah. His earthly ministry embodied these future-oriented promises and introduced several aspects of this new age into the present. For instance, in Matthew 11, when John the Baptist asks, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus uses Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, as a summary of his ministry, as verification that he is the promised Messiah. This is happening now. And so the day of the Lord is here. He is the one who is to come. The day of the Lord has come in Christ's first coming, and this has made several aspects of the new age available. The new covenant, the new temple, the restored people of God, the Holy Spirit, and the kingdom in part. However, Scripture also teaches that there is more yet to come. The kingdom is in a state of already not yet. Not all of Isaiah's promises and the, uh, those found in the rest of Scripture have been realized. For instance, we still await a restored creation. We still await full, final justice, the complete removal of sin, and the full kingdom of God. These aspects of the new eschatological age will only come 
at the second phase of the day of the Lord, when our Lord Jesus returns to consummate the kingdom. It's in the second and final advent of Christ when he will return to judge his enemies with sword in hand, or rather in mouth, if you think of the language of Revelation 19. It's then that he will vindicate his people whom he purchased with his own blood. It is on that day when all of his people shall sing a new song, Isaiah 35 and Revelation 14, and they'll enter into the new Jerusalem. In that place there will be nothing unclean, we saw in Isaiah 35 and Revelation 21. There will be no death, grief, pain, or ailments, Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, Revelation 21, 4, 22, 2 through 3. People will drink freely from the river of life, Isaiah 35, 6 and 7, Revelation 21 and 22. God's people will enjoy his presence forever as they see his radiance and glory, as they see the glory of the Lord, Isaiah 35, 2, Revelation 22, 4, and they will see his face. Therefore, as Peter writes, you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming, 2 Peter 3, 12. And Paul says, we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2, 13. And so as those who have tasted the already, but await the not yet, the most fitting response to the message of Isaiah 34 and 35 is to embrace and resonate with our hearts, minds, and actions the very final words of the Bible found in Revelation 22:20. 20. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Would you pray with me? Yahweh, you are holy, you are just, and yet you are kind and gracious. Help us as we have explored these traits today in the book of Isaiah. Help us to understand rightly your character and what it means for you to be a God who pays back what is due to those who do not trust and who rebel against you, and yet you're a God who redeems and restores. Lord, you, you are so kind to us, far kinder than we deserve. It is such a privilege and such a joy to have experienced in part the blessings of salvation as we look forward to the day in which we will experience these things in full, when we will no longer have sorrow or sadness when we will be completely filled with joy and gladness. We ask that you would help us to walk on the way, to walk on the holy way, to obey your will and your word. Would you help us to do so as we keep our eyes focused on the prize, on what you have for us in the future? which we know is only because of what Christ has done on our behalf. We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we know that he is coming soon. And so we pray, yes, come, Jesus, come. Amen.